This is Vintage Old Biddy, a variety show podcast for lovers of kitsch, comedy, and conversation. Featuring Biddy extraordinaire, Michelle Macaron. It's the holiday season. Welcome to the last episode of 2022 of Vintage Old Biddy. This month, we have an extra special radio play for your holiday cooking. What you're about to hear is an excerpt from the talented David Templeton's biographical play, Polar Bears, performed by Chris Carlson. Be sure to check out the show notes about these two wonderful performers and enjoy. I never wanted to have kids. I didn't think it would be fair, you know, to them. The way I figured it, the kid would need a parent who was uh, parental, <laughs> organized, mature. But me, well, people had always said I was immature, unrealistic, spur of the moment, a dreamer, goofball, screw up, a mess. And that's the people who liked me. So I decided I would never have kids. And I got one. I was so depressed. When Gladys, my first wife, told me she was pregnant, I was certain the poor kid was doomed. But Gladys was excited. She wanted kids. She was 34. Her clock was ticking. I was 25. If I had a clock, it was lost, broken, or buried under the seat cushions of my pickup truck. All I could hear was the scared little voice warning me how completely unready I was for fatherhood. Okay, okay, on the plus side, the mature side... I did have a good job, working swing shift at a small newspaper in the suburbs. I had a nice apartment in a cool old building that used to be a whorehouse, but but on the downside, the immature side, well, for one thing, I spent my summers running a game booth at the Renaissance Fair where people paid money to throw mud at my face. And that was my idea. Gladys tried to convince me that my immaturity made me a perfect candidate for fatherhood since I'd have so much in common with our children. The one thought, the only thought that calmed my fears and gave me a glimpse of fatherhood in which I might not make a total mess of it, that one thought was Christmas. To be specific, Santa Claus. I had very strong ideas about Santa Claus. This is my earliest photo of me in Santa Claus. I'm uh, 19 months old, and I look uh, wary, but willing to know more. I have no memory of this, none. Would you like to hear my actual earliest memory of Santa Claus? Yeah? It was the Christmas morning I stopped believing in Santa Claus. Oh, I remember it. Sitting there in front of the tree in my Batman pajamas, my little brain putting two and two together as I slowly became aware that all the presents from Santa Claus, the Rock'em Sock'em robots, the farm animal see and say, they were all wrapped in the exact same wrapping paper. Polar bear wrapping paper. What all the other presents were wrapped in. All the stuff from mom and dad to the rest of our relatives. I knew that polar bear wrapping paper. I was with my mom when she bought that polar bear wrapping paper. That moment 
it was like watching a popsicle in a frying pan. I could actually feel my belief in Santa melting away, melting into a hot, sticky syrup of thick, sugary disappointment. And uh, I mean, I might not have been the brightest bulb on the Christmas tree, but Jesus Christ, Mom and Dad, how hard would it have been to find a different wrapping paper for all the stuff from Santa? I read this study once in a psychology magazine. A bunch of experts in Canada studied like 5,000 kids, charting their development from birth to adolescence. And one of the things they figured out was that most kids, when they stop believing in Santa, they do it between the ages of seven and a half and 11. When that happens on the early end of the spectrum, it's usually because an older child breaks the bad news. <laughs> but if a kid somehow makes it to the age of nine or 10 with their faith intact, it's over the next couple years that they reach the proper age of cognitive development in which they come to their own logical conclusions about Santa. In other words, they get old enough to figure it out. Between the ages of seven and a half and 11, me, I was four. Look, I'm not saying I was traumatized or anything. I mean, Santa or no Santa, I kept getting presents. The tree still went up every year. There were lights and ornaments. The thrill of the holidays still went on. But from that moment, I did always wonder what it would have been like to have kept on believing, to have kept that magic alive till I was, I don't know, five or six or, or seven and a half. And I always knew that if I ever did have kids, I'd be careful. I would not make the same kind of mistakes that force kids to lose Sarah before they're ready. Oh, I'd make mistakes. But when it came to the holidays, when it came to Santa Claus, I'd be the kind of dad who makes his kid's Christmas as magical as magic can be. But one thing, I'd avoid wrapping Santa's gifts in everyday wrapping paper. In fact, I wouldn't use wrapping paper at all. Santa doesn't need wrapping paper, right? If ever I had kids at Christmas time, that would be my rule number one. Santa never wraps his presents. Santa's presents just appear. When my daughter Jenna was born, she was beautiful and, and rubbery and kind of weird. And I loved her immediately. But because she was born in February, I had a whole 10 months to wait till my first Christmas as a dad. And nearly two years until she'd be cognitively developed enough to appreciate the idea of a magical man and his flying reindeer dropping toys down the chimney in the middle of the night. By then, my rule number one had expanded. It had become a whole list of rules. I wrote them down for Gladys. I called them the Santa rules. Rule number one, Santa never wraps his presents. Rule number two, on Christmas Eve, no matter how late it is or how tired the parents are, Santa's gifts never make the move from the closet to the Christmas tree until I have determined the kid is in deep REM sleep. Rule number three, if the kid leaves a snack for Santa and Santa doesn't eat all of it, the remains are never thrown into a trash can where the kid might find them. The leftovers must be flushed down the toilet 
rule number four. Santa never delivers unassembled presents. Rule number five. If a present does require assembly, all packaging materials in which the item arrived must also be disposed of somewhere that the kid will never find it, preferably in the trash can of a neighbor at least two blocks away. Hey, this is all just common sense. When my kid stopped believing, it wasn't going to be because she, I don't know, because she found half the gingerbread man she decorated for Santa in the trash can with some coffee grounds and her old Brillo pad. It wasn't going to be because her parents got sloppy with the details. Anyway, there are a lot of other rules too. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, all of them carefully designed to let Jenna believe in Santa just as long as she wanted to believe in Santa. After a few years, though, I discovered that Jenna was a bit of a skeptic. She loved the idea of Santa, but she was just brutal in the way that she saw through things, testing everything she didn't understand, asking constant questions. And predictably enough, some of those questions led to the spontaneous on-the-spot invention of brand new Santa rules. Daddy? Is Santa Claus dead? Is he a ghost? What? No, why would you think he's a ghost? Because live people don't go in the fireplace where there's a fire in it. That's true. Don't ever go near the fireplace when there's a fire in it. But, but Santa is not a ghost, he's a Santa. But that is why on Christmas Eve, we um, always put out the fire after 7 p.m. So it's nice and cool when Santa drops down the chimney. Rule number 11. On Christmas Eve, no fires in the fireplace after 7 p.m. Daddy, how does Santa fit down the chimney if he's so big? Um... He's so heavy, and his bag of toys is so heavy, he just falls down the chimney. Boom. It's the law of gravity. It's science. Oh. Well, then how does he go back up? Hmm. He doesn't. He leaves through the window. Daddy, if Santa leaves through the window, won't there be boot prints outside by the rose bushes? Well, yes, of course, on Christmas morning, what do you say we go out and see those blueprints for ourselves? Rule number 12, on Christmas morning, there will be a trail of large blueprints, not, not tennis shoe prints, out there by the rose bushes. And whenever boots are used, they cannot under any circumstances, be the same shoe size as me or anyone in the house, because the kid will probably go through all the shoes and compare them to the Santa tracks. It was a commitment, yes. But you know what? It worked. Questions, doubts, and everything. Jenna kept on believing for, I don't know, three or four more years anyway. Jenna believed in Santa right up until her mother died. Oh, but I'm getting ahead of myself. In spite of my lifelong fear of fatherhood, I discovered that I actually liked being a dad, and I was possibly a little better at it than I thought I'd be. I decided that 
me and fatherhood, we were going to work out. Me and Gladys, not so much. Everything that was good about us was eventually crushed under the weight of everything that wasn't. Still, by the time the divorce papers changed hands, we had had another kid, Andy. Anyone want to guess what special day of the year Andy was born on? The 4th of July. Yankee Doodle Andy. Who would go on to have even stronger ideas about Santa Claus than I ever did? After the divorce and my move to a town 45 miles away, Gladys and I agreed that I should still be there every morning when the kids got up and she left for her job as an insurance underwriter in the city. I still worked the swing shift at the newspaper, three to midnight, Monday through Friday. So every morning, right around sunrise, I'd guzzle coffee and sleepily drive to my kid's house, only half awake, but fully aware of the irony that a guy who never wanted kids was now completely crazy about his own. Thinking about them, making up plans of things to do with them, worrying about them all the time. And one of the things I worried about a lot, of course, was Christmas. What if Gladys started ignoring the Santa rules? What if her parents, Elsa and Paul, accidentally gave the wrong answer to a Santa question or, or, or lit a fire in the fireplace after 7 p.m. on Christmas Eve or, or, or used wrapping paper in an unauthorized manner? See, magic is a fragile, delicate thing. It does almost always have an expiration date. And one clumsy move will shatter it in a second, like a glass ornament you step on on Christmas Eve in bare feet while opening the window by the tree to make it look like Santa used it to leave the house. I read another study once in another psychology magazine. The title grabbed my attention. Parental insecurity and guilt identified as contributing factors in chronic Paternal overcompensation and obsessive behavior frequently found in the fathers of children of divorce. Well, shit. I was the father of children of divorce now. I was a child of divorce myself. My parents split up when I was six. So maybe it carried some kind of gene or obsessive paternal overcompensation that certainly divorced dads had. And, and maybe sometimes pass along to their recently divorced adult sons. It was my dad, actually, during one of our regular long-distance phone conversations, who pointed out that I definitely, maybe, did need to, you know, chill out a little. Not that my dad ever would have said it like that. For one thing, my dad rarely said anything so succinctly. He was a man of uh, many words like his dad before him, like all three of his sons, my dad was a teller of tales. So when I called him up one evening to give him an update and share some of my parental insecurities and guilt, my dad, true to form, responded with a story. I don't know if you remember this, Davey. You were seven or eight, a few years after your mom and I split up. I came to pick you and your brothers up for the day. Stevie wanted to know what we were going to do. And I said, I had no idea. So he decided to go do whatever your mom was doing. And you and Jeffy 
ran out, jumped in my station wagon, and away we went. After a bit, we drove past that big red billboard on the side of the road. Remember it? The one that said, come on up to Santa's Village. Santa's Village was a little amusement park in the mountains, about an hour's drive from my dad's house. We loved the gingerbread houses, the bobsled rides, the, the puppet theater, and the, and the live reindeer you could feed carrots to. If you can stand and get close enough, reindeer can actually smell pretty foul. So, Davy, we looked at that billboard. We looked at each other, and we went on up to Santa's Village. And I can't remember what all we did, but we had a heck of a good time. And then I drove you home. Well, when you and Jeffy ran into the house with your candy canes and your little elf hats, Steve, poor little guy, he was pretty bent out of shape that he'd missed out on going to Santa's village. My dad's stories didn't always have a clear ending or an obvious point, even when there was one. Point is, Davey, I know you want to give your kids everything. You want to make sure they're happy. You should. But you're giving everything you have and you can only do what you can do. You love them, they know it, and that's enough. Even when it feels like it isn't. In other words, I should chill out a little bit. So I did successfully suppressing all impulses to overcompensate for any perceived feelings. And I stayed that way until right around October with Christmas coming up, I'd begun to hatch an idea, a way to bring a little extra Santa Claus magic to the kids' first Christmas Eve without dad at home. It wouldn't be easy. I'd only have Jenna and Andy for the morning and part of the afternoon, just Six hours. But with the help of a few friends and about two dozen total strangers, I somehow convinced to help. Six hours would be just enough time. When I arrived to pick up the kids for the day, Andy ran up to me with a bright red envelope in his hand. Dad, 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 dad. Mom found a letter from Santa Claus. The letter, which I had given to Gladys early to discover somewhere an hour or so before I arrived, was the first of five clues. The beginning of a treasure hunt, a treasure hunt that, if everything went according to plan, would have one Christmas Eve wallop of an ending. The clues were all written in nice, clean block letters, carefully drawn by Roberta, an artist at the ad department at the paper. Rule number 13. All letters, notes, and gift tags presented as if from Santa Claus must be written, not by any member of the family with identifiable handwriting, but by Roberta. Over the next six hours, those five clues sent us in order to a slightly mysterious old used bookstore where the next clue is found in a big old book of nursery rhymes. Then a large furniture store with a display of mannequins wearing historical Santa Claus outfits from around the world, where that clue was found in the coat pocket of the Santa from Finland. Then another place I really can't remember anymore. Then the engine room of the big downtown fire department, where that clue was found hiding under a helmet in the cab of a big red hook and ladder fire truck. The final clue sent us down the street to an ice cream parlor 
where the kids were instructed to get some ice cream, take a seat, and wait. The place was packed. We were sitting at a table in the center of the room, Jenna and Andy's backs to the door, when they heard it. Ho, ho, ho! They pinwheeled around, and there he was, Santa Claus, a.k.a. John Wallace, president of the local carpenters union, a.k.a. the white-bearded stepfather of my brother Jeff's girlfriend, Laura. Merry Christmas, everyone! Ho, ho, ho! Now this, while recognizably Kris Kringle, was a very blue-collar kind of Santa, dressed like he'd just left his workshop at the North Pole. He had his carpenter's belt on with rows and rows of candy canes dangling from it like icicles. Pinned to his shirt was a button that said, United Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners. And another in Latin that said, labor omnia winket, work conquers all. Now, who do we have here? Wait, don't tell me. That must be Jenna. And you must be Andy. Well, well, well. You've solved all my clues. I think such clever children deserve at least some of their Christmas presents a little early. Here's Mrs. Claus with a few things that we've picked out just for you. Mrs. Claus, a.k.a. Lynn, a.k.a. my brother Jeff's future mother-in-law, appeared in the doorway with her arms full of packages covered in bright, cold wrapping paper. Amendment to rule number one, Santa can occasionally use wrapping paper, but only when making public appearances in places like ice cream stores where unwrapped presents might be confusing and could possibly make Santa look unprofessional. You know, it's funny, to this day, I don't remember what was in those packages. All I remember is the look on my kids' faces. Andy couldn't even speak. He just stared up at Santa with a look of rapturous joy. Jenna, uncertainly of what the etiquette was for moments of this magnitude, took the formal approach, reaching out to shake Santa's hand. Thank you, Santa. You're so kind and gentle. Many blessings of the season to you. Ho, ho, ho! Santa, a.k.a. John, a.k.a. my future step-relative-in-law, then started working the room, distributing candy canes from one side to the other, finally turning to wave as he prepared to leave with Lynn through the front door. Goodbye, Jenna and Andy. Happy holidays to you all. And remember, if you are currently jobless, always consider a career in carpentry and construction. Good jobs for good wages. Merry Christmas. And he was gone. Yes. I did it. I did it. I did it. I'd just given Jenna and Andy a Christmas Eve they would never forget. Of course, I'd also just stumbled into another brand new Santa rule. Number 14. For the foreseeable future, Jenna and Andy must never be taken to any social event or family gathering where John and Lynn are likely to make an appearance. Thank you so much for another year of listening. I have some exciting things planned for 2023, and I can't wait to share them with you. Have a happy and safe holiday and a wonderful new year from Vintage Old Biddy. 
If you like what you hear, please subscribe and review the podcast wherever you listen. And if you have the ability to help financially contribute to my work, please join my Patreon or donate via tip jar. Links to both can be found in the show notes. For more information on Chris Carlson and David Templeton, please check out the show notes as well. Thank you so much to my Patreon patrons, Marianne Johnson, Joshua Lopez, Dina Grilly, Allison St. Rock, and Jessica Pruitt-Barnett. Special thanks to David Templeton and Chris Carlson. See you in 2023. Sing choirs of angels, sing in exultation, sing all ye citizens of heaven above.